All right, here we go. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the JuntoCast, a monthly podcast on early American history. This month, we're getting ready to take the trek to our state capitals, get certified by the legislatures, and square ourselves in for the choice of the next president. That's right, we're going to be discussing the origins and the legacy of the Electoral College in this month's episode. I myself am only here after a last-minute deal between Federalists and Democratic Republicans to make sure that there was a full slate of electors. And I'm Ken Owen, Associate Professor at the University of Illinois Springfield and author of the book Political Community in Revolutionary Pennsylvania, 1774-1800. to I'm joined for my discussion today by the faithless elector of the Junto cast, Michael Hattam. Michael is Associate Director of the Yale New Haven Teachers Institute and, very excitingly, author of Past and Prologue, Politics and Memory in the American Revolution, which is being published by Yale University Press later this month. In fact, I've even seen images that prove this book exists. Congratulations, Michael. Thanks, Ken. And I'm also joined by a man who shares the esteem of all the leading citizens in the country, Roy Rogers. Roy is a history teacher at the District of Columbia International School. Thanks for being here. Howdy, Ken. And I'm still waiting for my review copy of Past and Prologue. We all are, Roy. We all are. The key question we've got is, does a, sign, does a signed copy increase or decrease the value? It increases it in my heart. <laughs> I mean, I would send one to Ken, but he'd just throw it in a box. <laughs> We're recording this podcast in November 2020, in that brief period of time between the calling of the 2020 presidential election by the networks and the Associated Press but before the members of the Electoral College have met in the state capitals to cast their ballots for the next president and vice president. And we know that in the next month, there are going to be many column inches devoted to the topic of the Electoral College, why it works the way it does, raising questions about its original intent, the way that it's operated through the 19th and 20th centuries, and thinking about the purposes of a republican democracy more generally. The Electoral College is one of the more complicated aspects of the American Constitution. I certainly know that growing up in Britain, it was one of the aspects of a presidential election that took the most explaining. And so we thought that this month on the podcast, we delve in much greater detail into the origins and the debates at the Constitutional Convention relating to the Electoral College. We've touched on issues that relate to the Electoral College in 
other episodes, particularly when we've talked about early American elections and the early American presidency. But we've never focused on the institution itself in the detail that we're going to. And there is good reason for that. One of the problems in talking about the original intent of the Electoral College is that if you go through the records of the Constitutional Convention, there is precious little agreement on how the president should be elected. It goes through many different forms in the several drafts of the Constitution um, that are presented to the Convention. But we're always game for taking on a challenge here at the Junto cast, and so we're going to talk through the debates in Philadelphia in 1787 that surrounded the choosing of the executive. The first question really came to say, who should choose the president? Michael, what were the different options that were placed before the Constitutional Convention? Well, we've talked about this before in previous episodes, but you know there there are some key issues surrounding who would choose the president, and they all really have to uh, do with the the issue of the independence of the branches, right? Um, early early proposals, uh, both the Virginia and the New Jersey plan, called for Congress initially to choose the president, um, and that was ultimately. Uh, rejected for this reason that if if the Congress, if the president was beholden to the Congress for their position, it would weaken the independence of the executive branch relative to the legislature. Um, and so uh, it's only uh, through discussion over the course of the summer that other options begin to appear. Um, first, uh, another option was to have the, the state legislatures um, choose choose the, the president. Um, and there are debates, which we'll get into uh, in a moment, about why that would not necessarily work. But if it's if the and then a third option that was raised, but um, not seriously considered, it appears from the from the records that a popular vote uh, might uh, be a way to elect the president. That's proposed first by James Wilson and was supported by Governor Morris. Right. But um uh, but in the end, that that was never really going to fly in the convention. So there were those three options that were uh, that were proposed over the course of the summer to try to to figure out how how do we how do we choose who 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 the president is. So yes, you, you're right. There are these different ways that are proposed for who who might choose the president. And when the issue first comes up at the Constitutional Convention in, in the middle of July, it comes after quite an intense debate has ensued about what powers should be given to a national legislature and what powers should be given to the executive branch more broadly. Indeed, at the time that the election of the executive is discussed, there hasn't really been any final settlement of of any of the issues. One of the things that fascinates me every time I look back through the records of the convention is just how quickly 
the framers go back and forth between the different models that have been proposed. So um, on July 17th, they agree that there will be a single executive. Um, The New Jersey plan, the the plan put forward by the small state, suggests that there should be a plural executive, an executive council of three men. But after July 17th, it's basically agreed that there will be one man um, who will be elected president. Um, They then defeat popular election nine to one. They then defeat electors appointed by state legislature eight to two and approve unanimously with a a vote of 10 to to zero um, election by the national legislature. But then a bitter debate ensues about whether it's proper for the legislative branch to appoint the executive. Um, And just two days later, Governor Morris brings up the question of electing the president again, um, at which point they end up agreeing on appointment by electors chosen by state legislatures. Interestingly, they are more in favour of state legislatures having a role in an appointment than they are over electors. Um, And then after that, they have another vote where they agree that each state should be given between one and three electors per state. Now, I'm not expecting everyone to follow every twist and turn of the details here. The point that I really want people to take away from this is, in a very short space of time, the convention keeps changing its mind. Because I say that all these decisions have been made on July the 20th. On July the 24th, they discuss appointment by electors again. And this time they defeat the idea of electors and approve by seven to four appointment by the national legislature. This sparks off another whole round of debate. Um, the most interesting comment I think that comes out of this is is Madison, where he basically runs through all four of the different ideas that have been proposed to the convention and explains why all of them are terrible. Um, but regardless, this is the this ends up being the last issue that the convention even discusses before they go away um, and break off a committee of detail to draw up a a thorough first draft. Again, we'll, we can we can talk about what happens in, in August and September um, in more detail later. But again, every time this is brought up in August. 24th and 25th, um, from September 4th to September 7th, every single time there are multiple overlapping contradictory votes on how the legislature, um, what legislative role there should be, and whether what level of popular involvement in the election of, of president there should be. It's it's a bit like trying to to follow the ball in a game of tennis from from midcourt it just goes back and forth so quickly that it can actually be quite difficult to keep up with what the sense of the convention is in in any particular moment perhaps we should start off by talking about the the national legislature because that is the way that the virginia delegates frame the 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 choice through the through the Virginia plan. Um, In some ways, this is an idea that 
springs a little bit out of the Articles of Confederation, that when the Articles of Confederation has led to the creation of executive departments for finance and for war, they've very much been appointed by and controlled by the legislature. This is this is not an unusual model for the appointment of, of national officials under previous models of the Constitution. Um, but it does bring up a really important question that gets debated in quite laborious detail at times, which is what is the proper role of the executive? Um, And so this is where we really see Madison in particular articulate his vision of the importance not only of the separate nature of the legislature and the executive, but the independence of the legislature and the executive as well. Right. So, I mean, for Madison, I think the primary concern having to do with the legislature choosing the executive comes to be this idea that you can't have the legislature be responsible for making the laws and then also be responsible for choosing the executive who will execute those laws, right? If those two roles are combined in or, or tied in this way, that leaves the door open to, uh, to, to what he called, uh, tyrannical laws. If you don't split the making of laws with the execution of those laws, um, then you're you're inviting uh, some, some form of tyranny. And in particular, he has modelled most of his ideas for the Constitutional Convention on trying to fix many of the problems of the state governments in the 1780s. And his main prescription is you need to control the legislature. The legislature will always tend to agglomerate power. It will always tend towards tyranny. And unless you can have an executive who can mediate between an overmighty legislature and the people, that is how you end up sliding from a republic into despotism. I think it's also extremely, this way of thinking is very out, uh, counterintuitive to 21st century Americans and yeah. world citizens, because democratic theory has kind of turned against this idea of there needing to be a sharp uh, demarcation between the executive Uh, And legislative branch, many other democracies in the 19th and 20th and 21st century don't have that clear demarcation. And then also, of course, that it's actually the executive branch over the course of our history that has been come to see as overweening and a place of centralizing authority and um, being a real threat to tyranny. Um, And that's not something that was really one of the really big fears in the Constitutional Convention as much as the lived experience of a lot of these elites in really unruly state legislatures um, of the 1770s and 1780s. Although it is interesting that you mentioned that the fear of an executive isn't an overriding concern, because a number of delegates do bring up the question of 
executive power when they talk about popular election. Mm. So on the one hand, legislative election is disliked because it seems to lean too much into the possibility of legislative overreach and making the executive a mere pawn of the legislative branch. But at the same time, critics of the idea of the popular vote expand on their idea that if the populace at whole as a whole that doesn't really know the qualifications of men who live in distant right. states um, and their qualities as president, that that will essentially lead to an elective king. And it is quite interesting that even when it doesn't seem like election by popular vote is, is particularly likely a lot of the fears that the executive branch is being given too many powers and that it might become an elective monarchy, um, that is most commonly brought up as a means of rejecting the idea that a popular vote is a good idea. Oh, that's a really good point. I mean, you know, during the, the convention, you know, Roger Sherman talks about this idea and, and basically argues, as Ken noted, that uh, it, w- it would be unlikely that um, that regular citizens, especially rural citizens for that matter, um, would, would, would know enough uh, to, about these individuals who, who might be uh, in the running for president to, to, to make some kind of informed choice. For Sherman, the issue was not you know that they would not be informed about certain candidates' political positions or ideology. He was worried that they wouldn't be sufficiently informed of, of their character. But his other concern was that because most Americans in the late 18th century did not often end up traveling very far from their homes, he thought that inevitably what would happen would be that people would vote for a candidate from their own state who would, they would be likely to know the most, and that in in a situation like that, it would be likely that um, the president would always come from you know one of the few of the, the largest states. Absolutely. And and this is an idea that gets picked up by by other representatives as well. I mean, Hugh Williamson from North Carolina returns to this idea later in the convention. And he suggests that one way around this might be giving everyone the right to vote for two or three candidates, that that way they will vote for someone from their own state first. But the second or third choice will be as likely to come from a small state as, as, as from a large state. Um, I mean, really, when you start looking at some of the different proposals and counter proposals that get put forward, they get absolutely crazy. Um, it's, it's amazing that anything came out of the Constitutional <laughs> Convention when you see some of the unwieldy and unworkable suggestions that are put mm-hmm. forward for the election of president. But I think that there is something that's interesting here, that we, we talk about um, Sherman from Connecticut and Williamson from from North Carolina and, and others, Patterson from New Jersey, William Houston from Georgia get involved in, in these debates, all arguing for the interests of small states. Uh, mm. Williamson later argues for the interest of southern states and worries that a popular vote will mean that there will always be a northern majority for right. um, for selecting the president. And something, again, that you see throughout the debates 
is the fact that actually when people discuss the election of the president, they are often discussing meta issues that are of much bigger concern throughout the convention. And they're sort of having this proxy war over the battle between large and small states, the battle between Mm -hmm. North and South, the battle Mm -hmm. over how much power should be given both to the federal government and to the respective branches of the federal government. And quite often, whether or not there is a good electoral mechanism actually comes very low down the list of priorities of those debating. So one of the things that's really interesting about uh, the Electoral College is it's really difficult to get intent from these debates. In many ways, it's the opposite of how we talked about the Supreme Court, which was in many ways it was difficult to figure out what the intent of the framers was because they're relatively silent about the Supreme Court and the judicial branch compared to uh, so much of the debate about the other two branches. With the Electoral College, there's just so much debate, so, and it's frequently, as Ken you know, narrated the story, contradictory uh, up to the point in which the final decision is made that it's really hard to tease out the necessary um, implications of all the different arguments that are made to create sort of a coherent through line through it all. And I think your point, Ken, of that, you know, this is sort of a second, it's it's in many ways electoral college and um, how the president is chosen in many ways is a victim of all the other debates. And the fact Mm -hmm. that it could be this proxy argument for so many other seemingly settled issues that could sort of be reopened by delegates by bringing up this issue of how to pick the president, um, I think is really important to its fate as kind of this vestigial part of the Constitution that's sort of cobbled together at the last second. Yeah, I mean, I think a really good example of this is when the question of electors is first discussed um, before they adjourn in July for the Committee of Detail to draw up a draft. They The proposal that's put forward for electors before it gets switched to being a proposal for appointment by the national legislature is that every state gets between one and three electors. And Basically, the reason that this proposal gets through is that after a month or more of wrangling over the New Jersey plan and the correct amount of representation for the small states, the delegates from the small states who've put forward the New Jersey plan are quite happy to sign on to an idea that very clearly limits the influence that Virginia and Pennsylvania are going to have over the selection of the of, of, of the national executive. Mm-hmm. It, um, it, it's really clear tracing through there how much those even when there is agreement, how much that agreement is often cobbled together by piecing three or four different issues and stitching them all together um, to put them into a draft. But at this point, we should probably talk a little bit more about the model of the Electoral College that does make its way into the Constitution. Um, As I mentioned earlier, the Convention meets again in early August to discuss a draft in detail. The election of the executive is touched on briefly in the midst of other debates um, 
in on August 24th and August 25th. Um, interestingly, that debate is coming right in the middle of debates over what powers Congress should have with regards to the Atlantic slave trade. Um, and the issue is then brought up again for the last time in early September. But again, given in some ways the small amount of the final text that's taken up by the Electoral College, it really dominates debate. And most of the debate from September 4th through to September 7th is dedicated to the discussion of the Electoral College. The college is basically the winner that comes through the middle. Um, the national legislature plan gets defeated on institutional grounds. The proposal to replace this with a national popular election um, gets defeated on somewhat elitist and anti-democratic mm-hmm. grounds. Mm-hmm. And so the last proposal that hasn't been recently defeated is is the Electoral College. It's a bit like that joke about airlines that there's there's two types of airlines there's those you don't like and those that you haven't fl- um you haven't flown with in a while well by <laughs> early september the delegates at the constitutional convention haven't been reminded of why they hate an electoral college in a while and they pick up that plan and refine it into its final constitutional form as as time is sort of running out on the convention too right it has to be said I, I think it's important to, to point out that there were some forms of historical antecedents for, if not the Electoral College specifically, then what the Electoral College represented. It's reflective of an idea in, in 18th century politics and governance that there could be and, and often would be certain political or, or governmental tasks that required a temporary and, and independent body to execute. Uh, one of those examples, uh, as Ken pointed out before we began recording, was the, the Council of Censors that was included in the original Pennsylvania Constitution. And the idea there was you have this uh, independent body who is uh, going to uh, review all the legislation that was passed by the uh, by the state legislature over a, a period of uh, the previous seven years. Um, there are some examples of this also going back in early modern European history. Uh, so, so this is the sort of uh, where the sort of the broad idea of of the electoral college uh, effectively comes from. Yes, and it's very clear that by the time the Electoral College finds its its final form, there is at least some sort of hybrid thinking that's emerged out of the, the debates over electing the presidency. Um, James Wilson is most famously associated with this by saying that he wishes to build the federal pyramid to a very elevated level, and that to do that you need as broad a base of popular votes um, as possible, and therefore any form of choosing the executive that doesn't have some relation to popular choice isn't really valid. Um, Ultimately, that's why you get this quite convoluted language in the 
in the constitution of electors being appointed in a manner um, such as the state legislatures shall direct. Um, Again, this serves a number of different purposes. It connects the presidency to popular election in some way, shape or form. It connects the federal government to the state government in some way, shape or form as well. Neither of them are absolutely perfect from a theoretical perspective. It, it, as political commentary in the 21st century shows, this is not a purely democratic move to elect a president, nor is it a the type of move to select an executive officer that you would expect if the constitution was merely a compact between 13 independent states. But it provides something that's close enough to each of those ideas that when federalists have to go out and make the argument for the electoral college, they will be able to connect it both to the popular will and to the importance of state governments. And those are incredibly important in the rhetorical devices that are used by the Federalists in securing ratification of the Constitution. Right. I mean, if if we if you think about the ways in which people in the, the late 18th century thought about the idea of representation, then having state legislatures choose electors who then would elect the president, it, effectively, it, it looks like a... a a mediated popular vote in a sense, right? Much more so to the, to, to the 18th century perspective than than our own sort of 21st century perspective. Absolutely. And the importance of that mediation also comes through the fact that the Electoral College never meets as a single body. Um, another idea that runs through a lot of the debates about election is that If the election is decided by the legislature, in the words of Governor Morris, it will become an act of intrigue, of cabal and of faction, that it will mean that this is actually smoke-filled rooms leading to deals that are against the interests of the people more generally. However, if you have the Electoral College as a body that is meeting in over a dozen states and that never actually comes together as one, it reduces the possibility for this to become a meeting of cabal and is more likely to elevate men of character. And it's going to backfire or, or show this problem in the election of 1800, right, where the the, la- the lack of the ability of the Electoral College to coordinate is in many ways why Jefferson and Burr end up with the exact same electoral votes, right? If they had all be- if all the Republican electors had been in a room together in Washington or New York or Philadelphia, they would have been able, okay, all right, all right, all right, John, you're not going to vote for Burr. You're going to vote for yourself or someone else, and we'll make it clear, but that's sort of when no one blinks, the Republican electoral college strategy is too successful in the election of 1800. You sort of see the the ways in which Morris is right that the, that um, that uh, it will prevent a cabal, but it will also weirdly distort the will of the people uh, who clearly want the voters who voted for Jefferson and Burr wanted 
Jefferson to be president, Burr to be vice president. But the way the Electoral College worked, its inability to coordinate actually ended up not allowing that. Well, it happened eventually, but it took some work. (laughs) I mean, it's also worth, you know, worth thinking about the fact that there was a fair assumption on the part of many delegates that a situation like happens in 1800, where two candidates have the same amount of electoral votes, and and in which case that means that the House of Representatives would choose, uh, that 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 would be more common than it ended up uh, turning out to be. Yeah, and I think it's important that before we move on from the convention that we we mention the backup to the the Electoral College. Um, it's only quite late in the process that the House of Representatives comes to be the backup to either split a tie or resolve a situation where the leading candidate only receives a plurality rather than a majority of the votes. In fact, under the way that the original um, Electoral College was written, it was going to be the Senate that decided the election. At that point, it was objected to by George Mason and others who were fearful that the Senate was already being given somewhat aristocratical powers with a six-year term and with its ability to advise and consent on foreign treaties and on executive appointments. And so that's when the convention decided to move the backup plan to the House. Although, again, because nothing with the Electoral College can be simple and easy, it's not just a vote of the House of Representatives. It's a vote of the state delegations to the House of Representatives. So every state only has one vote for president, should the Electoral College vote be referred to the House. Um, I'm a constitutional nerd and just spending the time trying to explain the Electoral College simply and easily makes my head hurt. And this is just another example of how basically the Electoral College is the sort of institution that only a committee could love. And it's this specific section, the sort of backup plan is easily the hardest thing to grok in the entire constitution. Um, I think it's also, it's been, a, I think also the, the biggest failure of the Electoral College, the times in which we've gone to the House of Representatives to choose our president have been the times in which you see what Morris and others warned about, this cabal that, you know, tries to mess with uh, the outcome of the presidency. Uh, and there's much more of that black room horse trading, whatever metaphor you want to use for these kind of political deliberations. And then to pile on top of the fact of that, that specific state delegation, um, again, shows that there wasn't really a conception of parties the way we, we, you know, that would quickly develop where, you know, you could, if, if the House is picking the president today, there are some states that, you know, a, one party may have a majority in the House of Representatives, but doesn't have a majority in state delegations. And that adds a whole additional level to sort of the chaos that the uh, that this specific article of uh, the of the Constitution can can wreak on the electoral process and does feel very poorly thought out. And then when you look at sort of that it gets the vice president gets kicked to the Senate by ballot, it continues, you know, shows that there is no real consistency um, among the committee members writing this and among the the framers confirming it of like what is the best way to 
fix corner cases with their system that they've worked out. One of the themes that you hit on there really well, Roy, is the fact that the Electoral College, insofar as it was intended to work in any particular way by the Constitutional Convention, never actually works in the way that it was intended. But the ratification debates do force Federalists to defend the Electoral College and to make a positive case as to why this is the most advisable way of choosing a president. Um, Most notably, this comes through the Federalist Papers, um, Federalist Papers 39, 59 and 68 all touch on the Electoral College and the choice of the executive officer. Michael, what do you have to say about the ratification campaign? I mean, I think the thing that's most sort of notable for the way that Federalists tried to sell the Electoral College in the Federalist Papers is that both Madison and Hamilton effectively sell it as the sort of next best thing to a popular vote, right? Madison Madison says in 39 that the, that uh, in in this in this system, the president is indirectly derived from the choice of the people, right? And Hamilton, likewise, in, in 68, acknowledges that uh, when he says, quote, the, the sense of the people should operate in the choice of a president. So there, so while we, while it's easy to look back at the Electoral College and see it as a, um, as a decidedly anti-democratic uh, form of, of of electing a president, and t- to some extent, of course, it is. But uh, part of the way that they felt uh, it would be most sort of uh, saleable or marketable uh, to the populace was to to frame it as um, an an indirect expression of the uh, choice of the people. It's interesting you say this, though, because that is true for the Federalist Papers, but I think it's always important to remember that the Federalist Papers are not written as an unbiased Mm -hmm. textbook or how-to guide to the Constitution. They are written as political pamphlets Mm -hmm. specifically to persuade the people of New York to ratify the Constitution. Of course, as Michael well knows, I reject any sort of historical <laughs> interpretation that places undue weight on the importance of revolutionary New York and prefer to see Pennsylvania as the <laughs> lodestar for the um, all that is instructive about the American Revolution. And when we look at how James Wilson sells the Electoral Mm. College to Philadelphians in early October 1787, he takes a very different line. He defends the Electoral College because it gives a role to the state governments. Um, He says, but upon what pretense can it be alleged that it was designed to annihilate the state governments? Upon their existence depends the federal plan, Um, And he says that the president is to be chosen by electors nominated in such manner as the legislature of each state may direct, so that if there is no legislature, there can be no electors, and consequently Mm -hmm. the office of president cannot be supplied. And I think this is one of the things that's really interesting about the Electoral College as it's finally constituted. It's malleable enough that it can be sold to potential federalists 
on a number of different bases. And that we see here that one of the ways that we can tell that there is a limited design behind the Electoral College is the number of different ways in which prominent Federalists sell it to the people. Mm -hmm. Of course, ratifying the Constitution is one thing, but turning the Constitution from a set of instructions into political practice is quite another. We're going to spend the next section of the podcast looking at the way that the Electoral College functions in the first federal elections. Roy, what can you tell us about the first presidential contests? So the first two presidential contests basically are the only time that the Electoral College uh, operates as it looks on the tin. Um, because it, you, if we, we talked about how difficult it is to affirm any attentions that are coming out of the Constitutional Convention vis-a-vis the Electoral College, except there really is one, which is that George Washington should be the first president of the United States. Um, and it works for twice. Yay. Uh, the problem, though, really starts in 1796 when you've got to replace Washington, when Washington chooses to step down, makes his his big, glorious march into the sunset. Um and Adams is elected president, and the leader of the political opposition is elected as his vice president. And you have a divided government in which you're, the person who is supposed to succeed the sitting president is the leader of his opposition. Should, how can the vice president and the vice president work together? Should they be working together? It really does cast into sharp relief many of the fault lines of this system. And then we've already talked about the election of 1800 when, you know, the Republicans' commitment to electing Jefferson as president and Burr as vice president over Adams backfires and there is a tie and both Jeffersonian candidates have the same number of votes and it gets thrown into the House and there's all kinds of shenanigans uh, until Jefferson is finally elected. And you can listen to our episode about the election of 1800 to go into detail about that. But then again, that is such a fail state. So in 1796, we see sort of the the coal, which is the canary in the coal mine election. Mm-hmm. You see this in 1800 just explode in the face of the founders, the framers, and the first, you know the first generation of political leaders to the point in which they have to amend the Constitution to ensure that there is not this problem and to solve the problem of you know the vice president and the president possibly being in opposition to one another and that you know really further trivializes the the position of the vice president in the end, um, but does sort of solve this initial wave of problems with how the Electoral College works. Yeah, I think that one of the effects that the election of 1796, or, or more specifically, the emergence of the first party system around the election of 1796 uh, has, you know, has to do with the, the nature of the electors. Before before that, the original idea is that electors would be free electors and would vote for the person that they believed would had a suitable amount of virtue to be the president of the uh, United States. Uh, of course, we don't ever really see that play out because Washington is the sort of unanimous candidate, right? Um, so we never we we never really saw an election where there were free electors. And that was contested, right? But in 1796, um, it, you know, is 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 like Roy says, the sort of canary in the coal mine, where electors go from 
being effectively uh, free electors to, in, in some sense, the beginning of being party committed electors. And I think that it's important to note that the idea that political parties would become such a dominant way of structuring politics would have been anathema to the delegates at the Constitutional Convention. Um, It's quite clear that you would not design the Electoral College if the Constitutional Convention had itself been the product of organised party politics. Um, 1796, I think, also is instructive. We do have to understand how many shenanigans... Alexander Hamilton played with the 1796 election using the cover that Washington doesn't officially retire until September to really prevent there from being any national campaign for president. And that therefore precludes there being any sort of national grammar of politics or agreed upon national structure by which electors are chosen. And so, uh, as Joanne Freeman writes about very clearly in in her book Affairs of Honour, you have a, a presidential election that is being contested in as many different ways as there are states. Um, and that means that the development of political practice around presidential elections is always a little bit detached, at least in the early years, from the ways in which the election is actually fought on the ground. It's, again, one of the issues in the election of 1800. States choose their electors in all kinds of different ways. And that's something that really comes to a head in 1824. Um, Andrew Jackson wins a plurality, but not a majority of the Electoral College votes. He claims to win a majority of the popular vote, but that's a much more contestable claim because not every state holds a popular vote in 1824, so it's impossible to tally a national vote for either Jackson or John Quincy Adams. By the time that the House of Representatives decides the election in 1825, and hopefully we've got a bit of time to talk about this in a little bit more detail, By the time the House makes its decision, it's become very clear that the types of popular organisation that have advocated Jackson's candidacy and Adams's candidacy are not reflected in the ways that the states have chosen their own electors. And so what the election of 1824 really highlights is that the Electoral College is quite heavily divorced from the will of the people. And indeed, by 1828, there will have been a considerable nationwide shift in the way that states organise their presidential elections. Yeah, another really important legacy of the election of 1824 is the specific tactic that Jackson and, and his supporters take when he loses that election in the House, which is, of course, its own... Uh, malarkey, uh, to use, use a current term, um, and is that this idea of the popular vote being important? Ken is definitely right. I think you know a third of the states uh, are still selecting um, their electors by 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 the state legislatures, so it's really hard to pin down what a popular vote is. And people at the time knew it, 
But at the same time, Jackson latches on to this idea of the popular vote, and it really enters our political discourse at this point and becomes the hobby horse that Jackson mounts and rides into the presidency in the next election. He's able to build this coalition around this idea and expand because it's appealing to people. The idea that the person who is the will of the people should serve as the next president, you know, and that, you know, combined with the malarkey that goes on between Adams and Clay in um, in the House of Representatives that ends up picking Adams, plus Jackson winning the nominal popular vote is this alchemy that really pushes this in to the discourse and is just going to build and build and build and build down to the present day where it remains an important cornerstone about debates over the Electoral College. How can it and how should it represent um, the popular vote? And I think it's also interesting, one of the interesting legacies of state legislatures choosing presidential electors is the lag that that creates, that elect, that it sort of can sometimes make the election year really the preceding year before um, the actual official presidential year. And that's something you see definitely in the election of 1800 and a few subsequent elections. And it's just, again, it's the idea that the presidency should, that who is selecting the president should be that snapshot of that moment of that election season is really begins with Jackson in 1824 and the push that he makes to 1828. Yeah, and I think it's really important there to note just how important that malarkey between Adams and Clay is in providing a contrast. Because you already mentioned the um, shenanigans that were attendant on the election of 1800 with the Federalists attempting to subvert the popular will by getting Burr into the presidency. In 1824, Jacksonians are very comfortably able to portray shenanigans in the House with Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, doing deals or at least allegedly doing deals with John Quincy Adams to become Secretary of State, whilst getting his own, the states that voted for him to vote for John Quincy Adams, despite the fact that Jackson finished second. I mean, it just seems to be the cabal and intrigue and faction that Governor Morris warned about in 1787. And so not only do you have a somewhat tenuous claim to popular approbation by Jackson, but you get to set it against the corruption of an electoral college that is dominated by political insiders and state legislatures and an opaque and untransparent process, and that that really helps build that snowball that ties the popular um, election and the electoral college in the popular mind. It really does speak to the, the, the lack of foresight or, or just prognostication on the part of the, uh, the delegates at the convention who feared the, the appearance of a cabal, you know, being the product of allowing state legislatures to choose, right? And, and ultimately, it's, it's that perception of the way that the, that the Electoral College Clause worked in, in terms of throwing the, the election to the House that, that ultimately helped bring about more calls for uh, a popular vote. You know, it's indicative of the, uh, of the role of, of you know, unintended consequences 
right when it comes from uh, comes to uh, the Constitution. And and I think it's really important to highlight that this is the Electoral College is a part of the Constitution that has two to three crises in its first fifty years of operation, right? Like it, it and you know is that's really important. It's probably it's just a part of the Constitution that it just doesn't work. Um, and as written in the Constitution, and and again, as we see with the Twelfth Amendment, the f- framers knew, the framers and and knew this basically pretty quickly, and you know Congress is willing to take action. So I think that it's really important to understand that that there's no real way to say that that there's a good set of, as, as Ken said, political practices around the Electoral College that's consistent across the first 50, much less 100 years that this part of the Constitution is put into practice. And it changes a lot. It's going to change during the crisis years after Jackson. It's And it will, of course, have another crisis in, in uh, 1876 um, and, and several, actually, in the, in the late 19th century. So there's just a lot of problems baked into this that are evident from the go in the way in which some other parts of the Constitution issues around it won't be, wouldn't be obvious until maybe the 1840s uh, or, or even the 1850s. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I mean, it it is one of the aspects of the of the Constitution that that appears to have been uh, among the the least equipped to deal with the type of changes that the, that the country would ultimately go through, and and that goes for as worse as the first fifty and a hundred years and redounds to the present. Well, now that we've cast light on the rather checkered history of the first 50 years of the Electoral College, it seems that we're coming towards the end of this episode. But before we finished, I wanted to do our typical round robin where I ask our panellists for final thoughts. This month, I thought I would ask panellists to choose one of two options. Either to give one main takeaway of the discussion that we've had today or to debunk one key myth that they hear a lot about the Electoral College at election time. So, Roy, I'm going to throw it to you first. Are you going to debunk a myth or are you going to give us a takeaway? I'm going to give us a takeaway. And I really hope that listeners take heart in what we've said here that the Electoral College, and I want to double back to my, my last comment, is a gigantic failure as an institution and has in many ways been dead weight around the neck of our republic since 1796, if not really since it was decided uh, at the end of the, co- the convention. It is an unwieldy, undemocratic, elitist institution that continues to malfunction and provide opportunities for bad faith actors or strong sectional, regional, or personal interests to get expressed in written into our national uh, politics. And the, as the presidency over the last 200 plus years has become a more powerful institution, the more the stakes of the utter failure of the Electoral College gets raised. And the fact that it both distorts our national politics and constantly produces these, if not a sense, constantly produces 
crises and sometimes, if not a crisis, a sense of crisis around itself shows that it needs to be fundamentally rethought. And it is not violating the understanding of the framers that this is some sacrosanct part of the Constitution. Because again, if you look at the 12th Amendment, it is a fundamental change to how it works. It fundamentally is no longer working in the way it was written. It fundamentally changes the nature of the office of the vice president to accommodate how Americans are actually practicing their politics. And I really, really want listeners to just take away just how toxic over the last 200 plus years this institution has and is, has been and is over our national politics and how we choose one of the most important uh, officers of our national government. Thanks for that, Roy. And Michael, are you giving us a takeaway or debunking a myth? So I'm, so I'm going to give a takeaway. I think that what the, one of the major takeaways from this discussion, this is uh, very much along the, the lines of what, what Roy said, though, um, though with a little less fire. Um, I think that, you know, one of the, what's important to understand about the early history of the Electoral College is that it's the meaning and, and the practice of this, essentially this constitutional uh, provision or mechanism uh, has changed over time as our national political culture has changed, right? And and we've seen that when that happens, uh, the Electoral College either helps to precipitate or contribute to these perceived crises in our political culture. I mean, uh, this goes back to when we were we were talking about uh, the Constitution in the uh, the episode on political parties, but it, but it, it really stands to to be repeated that the Constitution, you know, regardless of ideology, has been a living document. It has been amended. It has been reinterpreted numerous times throughout our history, various parts of it, and the same goes for the Electoral College. Well, it looks like it's fallen on me in that case to debunk some myths about the Electoral College. Um, the first one that I want to debunk is the idea that the Electoral College was created to pander to southern slave owners. This is an idea that's been gaining in prominence in public debate over the last 10 years or so, and particularly in, in 2016, when the Electoral College was coming under a lot of heat, it became very popular to attack the most obviously anti-democratic institution of the Constitution with slavery and slaveholding, the original sin of the American Republic. It's clear that by the mid-1800s, the power of the South, through the Senate in particular, also gets reflected in the operation of the Electoral College. But if we're going back to the original intent in 1787, the idea that this was particularly enacted as a sop to the South just 
doesn't stand up with the votes or the debates that are on record from the Constitutional Convention. Firstly, it assumes that the idea that a national popular vote could have selected the president was actually a viable political alternative. Pretty much the only thing that is rejected more at the Constitutional Convention than the Electoral College is the idea of a national popular vote. That idea is a non-starter and never would have gotten off the ground. The other alternative, a vote in the national legislature, might actually have given some of yeah, would have been attendant with exactly the same problems of the Electoral College. A joint ballot of the House and the Senate would give exactly the same proportion of votes to um, to the North and to the South. It also assumes that the development of an assertive and aggressive Southern power existed a lot more completely in 1787 than rather than developing as new states were added between 1790 and 1820. That idea about a de facto Southern veto over national policy is in many ways a product of the Missouri Compromise of 1820 and not of the preceding political culture. It doesn't mean that slavery isn't an important issue in national political debates. It just means that it was not part of the original design of the Electoral College. That feeds into what I think is also a really important takeaway that in in many ways backs up what, what Michael stated earlier himself. The political practice of presidential elections has always existed semi-detached from the organisational realities of the Electoral College. At the moment, the partisan alignment of the 50 states and the unequal distribution of population between those 50 states means that a lot of the failures of the institutional design of the Electoral College are really apparent. But there has always been a dialectical relationship between institutional design and political practice. And if we're trying to explain the development of presidential elections, if we're trying to explain the purpose of the Electoral College, we are going to get it wrong if we think that expressions of political practice reflected any sort of original intent in the institutional design. And with that, that puts us on the long march to the presidency. We've sent off our returns. They will shortly be opened on the halls of Congress. And by January, Michael might actually have finished production and turned this podcast elect into an officially inaugurated podcast. Whoa, 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 Ken. This is an 18th and 19th century podcast. It's not until March. Well played, Roy. You are indeed correct, Roy. On behalf of the 20th Amendment, I wholeheartedly (laughs) apologise. And that really is all that we have time for today. Uh, If you like what you've heard, you can find us on Twitter 
using the handle at JuntoCast. On Facebook, by visiting facebook.com slash thejuntocast. Or you can visit our website, www.thejuntocast.com. If you like what you've heard, please can you go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review? That helps other interested listeners find us. And you can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or any other favoured platform for your podcast pleasures. And now all that's left for me to do is to thank Michael Hattam for joining me today. Thank you, Ken. To thank Roy Rogers for joining me today. Thanks, Ken. And to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. We hope you'll join us for the next episode. All right, here we go. Hello. 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 Yep, I got a waveform, Michael. I got a waveform. That that will be the uh, the Easter egg. <laughs> Note to self: stop being so comfortable after Michael's hit record. <laughs> For sure.